Yes, the lights are on. Because if they are not, I know that some of you would fall asleep. All right? We are Saturday night. Okay, we're, we're talking about a story tonight in Acts, the book of Acts. So open your Bible, Acts 6 through 7. I want to share with you um, the story of Stephen. He is the first Christian martyr in the story of the Bible. He's the first Christian who was killed because of his faith in Jesus. And he's a man consumed with the Holy Spirit in his life and in his death. And the reason I want to bring this story to you is because in my walk with Jesus, trying to follow him, this is the story in the Bible that has impacted my life the most over, I think, probably the last two years. Um, and I'm praying that God would do the same thing in you that he's done in me through this story. This is how the story starts. Acts 6, 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so they secretly instigated men who said, well, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against God and against Moses. And they stirred the people and the elders and the scribes and they, they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And so they set up these false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was shining like the face of an angel, and the high priest said, are these things so? Okay? So this is the beginning of this story we're going to read, and if you're studying the book of Acts, we're kind of jumping into this story, right? We're kind of jumping into these certain stories in the Old Testament, jumping into the book of James, jumping into Philippians, we're jumping into this story in Acts. And the story of Acts is super fascinating. It's an amazing book of the Bible, right? And, and some of you have read it before, some of you haven't. But, but the story of Acts is basically, the story starts with this introduction of Jesus, right? Jesus rises from the dead. And kind of the first chapters of the story, you're like, this is awesome. This is going to be a book about Jesus. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he writes the Gospel of Acts. And then you're like, okay, this is going to be awesome. And then right away, Jesus ascends into heaven. <laughs> He's just like, whoop, right? Goes to heaven, and you're like, what the heck, like the main character just left the story, this story is going to be really boring, but you figure out in Acts, actually, the story of Acts is a story of what Jesus is doing here on planet Earth, but he's doing it through his spirit, through his followers. And so as you're kind of watching through the story of Acts, eventually this church is formed, this early church in Acts, and one of these people who follows Jesus in this church is named Stephen. And Stephen is, he's doing these signs and wonders, he's doing this kind of amazing stuff, and so what ends up happening is the same people that hold a false trial for Jesus, right, these kind of religious leaders, they're now doing the same thing for Stephen. And they accuse him of blaspheming God, Moses, the law, and the temple. And after each of these kind of false witnesses, they kind of bring all these accusations against Stephen, and they look back at him, and it says that his face was shining like an angel, Right, angels, the ones who kind of stand in the presence of God. And so there's this really interesting thing happen where like the religious leaders are kind of like accusing him of like blaspheming God, being against all that God stands for. And then they look back at his face and it's like his face is like a rebuke to them saying, oh no, my face is actually shining like from the presence of God. It's a crazy thing. But then the high priest asks him, there's this accusation against him and says, are these things they've said about you true? And what Stephen does in this moment is amazing. Like, it's so awesome what Stephen does. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he has memorized so much of the Old Testament and so much of the story of Jesus' life that he's heard from the apostles that he just begins to preach. He just starts preaching. And his sermon is incredible. 
Like, it's unbelievable, and we, like, do not have any time to read almost any of it because it's, like, a chapter and a half long. It's a really long sermon, and honestly, it's complex, and if you don't know the Bible well, it's actually a little bit confusing, but these are religious leaders, and so they know the Bible really well, and this sermon that he preaches to them from the power of the Spirit is profound, and it's honestly genius, and it isn't him. It is the Spirit of God doing what Jesus said it would do. Luke 12, 11, when they bring you before the synagogues, and the, you don't need to go there, just listen to this. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious how you should defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And the Spirit of God does that. And so later sometime this week, you should go read his sermon in all of chapter 7. But what the Spirit of God does through Stephen is he takes these kind of accusations that the world and the leaders of the world have brought against God's servant, and he turns it into an accusation against them. And he does this subtly and gracefully, kind of pulling them further and further along into this story he's telling, because he's telling this story of the history of Israel. And the leaders of Israel love hearing about their story. And so he starts telling them the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he starts with how kind of even like that kind of lineage ends up with Joseph. And he's like, yeah, remember how even like the, all the brothers... <laughs> Right, of Joseph, sold Joseph into slavery, and he's kind of saying, hey, remember how the one that God sent to save you in the Old Testament, remember how your fathers, like, abandoned him to die? And remember Moses, that other guy that, like, you're so proud of, who kind of led your people out of slavery, led our fathers out of slavery? Remember how your fathers rejected him and didn't follow his leadership? I'm, like, summarizing his sermon here, and he's saying, remember the law, that wonderful thing that you, kind of, leaders of Israel, you cherish so much? Remember how the very first thing you did when God was writing it on tablets of stone was you actually worshipped a golden calf and committed idolatry? And remember how actually the entire history of Israel was actually a history of your fathers worshiping other gods than Yahweh, the true God. And you know the temple, that thing you're revering so much and saying that like Christians have rejected? Well, remember the temple that David couldn't build because of his sin? And remember how in the last chapter of Isaiah, God says that God's way bigger than the tiny temple you've built for him? And actually the thing he demands of you isn't your sacrifices, but it's your humility that you would be people who tremble before his word and repent. And so he's kind of like weaving this whole sermon together, but eventually he gets to verse 51. Okay, so look with me in verse 51, because in verse 51, everything comes to a head. And what he's been doing is he's basically been like summarizing the entire story of the Old Testament, and he's kind of been like tying this string to all of it. And in verse 51, he kind of like pulls the whole thing tight, and he begins to crescendo his sermon, standing before the most powerful people in this part of the world, and this is what Stephen says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He's speaking to these kind of religious leaders, right? He's saying, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you received this law as though by angels, and yet you don't keep it. And then verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Stephen, this Christian man, this servant of God, he takes the knife of God's word, and he's speaking to these religious elites these worldly, powerful leaders of the day, and he takes the knife of God's word and he drives it through their heart, back through the entire history of their story. And he's saying, no, you're not doing God's will, but you stubbornly refuse God's leading. No, you're not those marked out by God through following his covenant, but you're uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, and your fathers are actually not these spiritual giants, but they killed the prophets that God sent them. And they killed them because they were talking about the righteous one who was to come, the righteous one that you have betrayed and murdered. Right, this is the story of the early Christians. They're, they're talking with these religious elites. They put Jesus on the cross and crucified him. And you have to understand, this is the most scathing rebuke that these people could possibly hear. Like, it's the most scathing rebuke people could possibly hear. But he's like, he aligns himself with them, right? If you read the sermon, he's like, these are like, our fathers did this. So he's not kind of standing on this pedestal and saying, like, you've done this. He's kind of pulling them into his story of being a sinner saved by grace. But make no mistake, he brings down the hammer. 
Like he hammers these people with the truth of the gospel. And so one thing I just want us to see before we move on. Don't soften the gospel because you think softening it will help people accept it. If you soften the gospel because you think you will make it more palatable, the only thing you are going to do is strip it of its power. The message of Jesus is that every human being stands condemned, full of sin, and in rebellion with the wrath of God and the justice of God, marking out the end of their story. We don't help the message of Jesus by minimizing that or not talking about that. But the power of the gospel, like the power that actually makes dead people come alive in Jesus Christ, is that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And it's that while we were his enemies, that's when he shows his love for us. And so Stephen brings the hammer down and he preaches one of the most intense and scathing sermons that we read in the entire New Testament. But that's not what gets him killed. What gets him killed is what happens next. Look what happens in verse 54. Now when he, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Which I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I think it means they're very angry, okay? <laughs> but he, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's having this vision. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's, he's proclaiming like the Jesus Christ, the Son of Man who was here. I see this vision of him standing in heaven at the right hand of power of the Father in heaven. I see Jesus in his glory. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And if you don't know what stoning is, basically what it means to stone someone is that you literally take small to medium sized stones and you hurl them at them until they fall over. And then you bring the bigger stones and you slam them on their body until their bones are literally crushed and destroyed. It's just literally killing someone in the most blunt force trauma way imaginable. So they cast him out of the city and they stone him. And, and the witnesses, they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who's kind of in charge of this whole thing. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This man and this story, they deserve our full attention tonight. Our full attention needs to be on this man and this story. So like if you're tired, wake up. All right? Like summon your soul. Let's go. Okay? Stephen. He is one of the early deacons in the church, one of the first deacons in the church. But this is a man with such tremendous spiritual power and such unstoppable force against the enemies of God that the only thing they can do to shut him down is kill him. And they do. And what is incredible about Stephen's story and so many Christians who have followed his footsteps is he doesn't fight for his life he doesn't try to overpower those who are stoning him, but with his eyes set to heaven, staring into the face of Jesus, he uses his last breath not to curse them, but to bless them and to forgive them. And after the last and the heaviest stones do their work and the blood of Stephen begins to soak into the ground, his last words are ringing in the ears of all of those who have just killed this man. His last words, Father, forgive them. 
And you're asking this question, and they're asking this question as this last words of this man ring in their ears. They're asking, who is this man? With his eyes set to the heavens, unmoved and unshakable, who is this man so fearless and bold with such strength, in the face of such strength and horror, and who is this man who uses his last dying breath to speak blessing on his murderers? The answer is that he is a Christian. But he is a Christian who is filled with the Spirit of God. The answer is he is a man who is absolutely consumed with the things of God. But as this great saint of God has his blood spilled on the front lines of God's war against sin and death, what first seems like a victory for the enemies of God is soon found out to be a horrible mistake. Because as the blood of this mighty man seeps into the ground, it is as though the gates of hell themselves begin to shake. And it is as though this like wind starts to sweep into the camp of the enemies of God and their knees start to shake because with the last breath of this dying man, he has prayed. And the one standing at the right hand of God the Father has heard his prayer. From the moment that Stephen's blood is spilled, the entire story of the world will literally begin to kind of expand and explode. Like what Jesus did on the cross, and then what Jesus did through his servant Stephen, ends up being the very thing that actually starts to spread the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Because we're introduced to a new character in the story, right? The one who comes to the very end, a man named Saul. You probably know him as the Apostle Paul. The one who people lay their robes at his feet when Stephen is stoned, because he's the one in charge of this whole thing. He is also the one that Stephen has prayed for. And God will change him from the greatest opponent of Christianity to the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. And so God answers the prayers of Stephen by actually forgiving and saving the very man who, sa who spilled his blood. And instead of crushing the movement of God that this man wants to do, he will actually meet Jesus. And he will be the one that God will use to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. That is amazing. That is absolutely stunning what is happening in this story. Like, it's, it's incredible. Like, Philippians, we read this morning, Paul wrote that book. He wrote most of the New Testament. And as we come to this story in the Bible, we should ask ourselves the same question that Stephen was forced to ask. Is the thing that you're living for worth dying for? Is the thing that you are living for actually worth dying for? What is the ambition of your life? What drives you? What controls you? What consumes you? What do you spend your imagination on? What do you spend your effort on? What do you sweat for? Is the thing that you're living for worth dying for? But there's another question that when I was reading the story that I started asking in my own life, and it's this, does the ambition of your life does the ambition of your life and your spiritual power make the enemies of God fear and hate you? Or does the ambition of your life and your spiritual power, are you totally non-threatening to God's enemies? Like, are you living this kind of life where your ambition and your spiritual power, the enemies of God say, we hate this person, we need to destroy this person, or do you have the kind of ambition and spiritual power the enemies of God go, non-threat, not a big deal, don't need to worry about that person, they're totally sidelined. I want to talk about Stephen's life and Stephen's death. Stephen's life. Stephen lives a spirit-filled life. And one of the very first things we learn about what it means to live a spirit-filled life is that a spirit-filled life is a life of service, okay? Now, if you read earlier in the story in Acts 6, you figure out that Stephen is not like an apostle. He's not even a leader. This is who he is, okay? I'll read this for you. 
Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, okay? This is talking about the food line at the church, okay? The soup kitchen that's going on. So they're saying there's this problem that's going on where it's not really being kind of, it's not equitable. And so the 12 apostles, they summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should stop preaching and kind of give this up to serve tables. Therefore, we're going to pick out from among you some people to basically oversee this distribution so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And it pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And they pick some other people. These are the first deacons of the church. But that's how Stephen's story gets started. He is a guy who is in charge of the food distribution. Okay? But then look what happens right after that. It starts to talk about Stephen. And it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, right, those are the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, they rise up and they start disputing with Stephen because Stephen is saying, Jesus is the Messiah. He's saying he is the savior of the world. He's God in flesh. He's speaking the gospel. And so they rise up with him, these unbelievably learned men, these philosophers, these absolute intellectual elites to try to shut him down. And it says in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so I want you to notice this. Your role in the church, your position in ministry doesn't actually matter at all. What matters is whether you are someone who is filled with the spirit or not. Some of you, you actually want to serve Jesus and you think that your role, whether you're a connection group leader or whether you're on staff someday or whatever kind of thing you have in your head, if I can just get this role or this position, then I can have influence in the kingdom of God. This story is telling you that actually doesn't matter almost at all. But what actually matters is whether you are someone who's actually filled with the spirit of God. What's Stephen's role? His role is to oversee the food distribution it's a service-oriented role. Stephen is the guy who comes in early before all of you and sets up the speakers. Stephen is the guy who comes in early and sets up the chairs that you can sit in. That's his job. And he has responsibility. It's actually a really important role. He's keeping the church on track. He's keeping it working. But he isn't one of the apostles. He isn't one of like the leaders. He isn't even one of the elders. He's the guy who oversees the food line. And yet this is a man who is absolutely consumed with the things of God. And so it says Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. I don't know about you, but I freaking love this. Like, are you kidding me? Like, this is the guy who's doing the miracles? Like, this is the guy. You're trying to, like, lock up the apostles, right? If you're the enemy of God's people, you're the Pharisees, you're the religious leaders, you're trying to lock up the apostles, throw them in prison, because you think the power is flowing from them. And if you can lock them up, then the movement will be over, so let's get the leaders. But then you turn around, and you find out there's a bunch of priests being converted to Christianity. That's what happens right before this. A bunch of priests get converted to Christianity. There's this murmur running through town of signs and wonders that this guy is performing. It's like, whoa, this guy's a lot like Jesus, isn't he? And you find out that the guy who's causing all this commotion is the soup kitchen guy. Are you kidding me? That is amazing. Think about this from the perspective of the religious leaders. Like, it's hilarious. Like the warrior who is slashing your ranks, who's gutting you from the inside of your organization, the priests are coming to faith. Who is at the front of this movement? Who is the tip of the spear that is moving forward with courage and power and signs and wonders? It is essentially the lunch lady. That's who Stephen is. And this should do a couple things. First, it means that we should not get swept up into the world's idea that only positions of influence and power and value. We should not get swept up into the world's idea that the only positions of influence and power and value are positions of authority. 
That is not a biblical idea at all. That is the world's idea, and we need to get rid of it in the church. One of the most influential and powerful people in the early church was the man serving the soup. He wasn't climbing to the top of the organization. He was climbing to the bottom. He wasn't trying to get the head seat at the table, but he was waking up early to fix the food so he could serve the people at the table. And this is not a lesser role in the kingdom of God. He is doing literally exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do if they wanted to be great in his kingdom. Jesus says, if you want to be great, then be the servant of all. And Stephen was the servant of all. And we shouldn't be surprised when people who obey Jesus actually get the thing he promised to give them. And so Stephen is this man of unbelievable spiritual power. So you want to be great? Then be the servant of all. So Stephen climbs down beneath everyone else and he serves the tables and he's the first Christian that is so spiritually dangerous to God's enemy that the only thing they can do is kill this man. That's amazing. That's awesome. I want to be like that. I want to be like that. And so the first thing we should see is that your role and your position in the kingdom of God is not what's important. What is important in your life is whether you are a follower of Jesus who's filled with the spirit of God or not. That is what is going to determine whether you make a mark on this world. Not whether you're a leader. Not whether you get a role in ministry. The question is, are you going to be someone of significant spiritual power or not? And you don't need a position for that. You just need the spirit. And so the second thing it should do is it should give us a tremendous vision for our lives. A tremendous vision for our lives because the tip of the spear, the one doing the signs and wonders, the one, the the religious kind of elites, they can't withstand his power with which he's speaking. He isn't an apostle. Like, listen to me, he isn't an apostle. This blew me away when I was like trying to like understand this because I'm like, who is this guy? He's not an apostle. He's just a normal Christian guy. So what makes him so powerful? Well, the story tells us. It says he's a man who's filled with faith, and he's filled with the Spirit of God. Now, we should stop for a moment here, because why are these two things singled out? It's weird. Faith and the Spirit of God. And we should ask a question right now, right? Isn't it true that every single Christian has faith? (laughs) Yeah. Every single Christian has faith. That's literally like the thing that you have to have to be a Christian, right? It's like the only thing you do. (laughs) So Christians have faith. And isn't it true that every single Christian has the Spirit of God? Yeah. That's what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. He puts his Spirit in you. Literally, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in your physical body as a down payment for the fullness of your salvation. So if you're a Christian, you have faith. And you have the spirit of God. But why does it specifically say Stephen had these two things? Because there's something markedly different about Stephen than the people around him. Everyone around him knows it. And the enemies of God know it. That is true of every single person who is in Christ. And when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus' forgiveness of your sins, God puts his Holy Spirit in you. But how much you live your life according to that Spirit, you have some role to play in that. And this is not some kind of Christianity 2.0 or some kind of hidden knowledge, no, but it's just the flame of the Spirit of God that Jesus Christ died on the cross to put inside you. You can either live your life fanning it into further flame Or you can live your life in such a way that you are like constantly dumping water on it. Which one do you spend more time doing? Because every single moment you are alive, everything you do, the things you watch, the things you read, the choices you make, you are either fanning into flame the spirit of God he put inside of you, or you're dumping water on it. There really are no neutral things. And in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10, guys, the whole Bible's talking about this. It's like fanning into flame. Listen to what 1 Timothy says. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, you Christians, train yourselves for godliness. 
For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. And he says, this saying is trustworthy and is deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. We like put in sweat and hard work into this. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this, like this kind of full kind of unity with Christ, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but there's one thing I do in my life. I forget what lies behind and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. What the whole Bible is telling you, and by the way, those two passages were written by the Apostle Paul who watched this man Stephen die. What the Bible is telling you is that God doesn't make some Christians into lions and some Christians into lambs. He doesn't give some of us a spirit of power and others a spirit of weakness and fear. No, he gives each of us the spirit of his son, Jesus. He puts inside every single one of you who has faith in Jesus, the spirit of God that rails against the darkness with the unstoppable fury of the Almighty. That is the spirit that he's put inside of you. And I think that Stephen took that seriously. I think that when Jesus invited him into this life of power, this life of meaning, this life that was actually the kind of life that wasn't just worth living, but was worth dying for, I think he took that seriously. And I think in order to take that seriously, he probably had to get rid of some of the distractions in his life because I don't think you can be someone who is distracted and be a person of immense spiritual power. I don't think both those things can be true. And so he probably just started some, doing some of the normal things we know we should do. He probably started praying, like a lot more. Like it wasn't like he crossed off his list. He was just saying, like, this is like going to be like one of the main things I do in my life is I'm going to be a person of prayer. And he probably started reading and memorizing large chunks of the Old Testament because he's saying, I want to be on the front lines of this war, but I don't like know what to say. I don't have words. So maybe if I memorize these words, maybe like the Spirit of God will use them in a powerful way. And he probably started memorizing the stories of Jesus that the apostles would teach before they were written in our Bible. And he probably started taking his sin deadly serious, like way more serious than any one of us in this room take our sin. Because he recognized that if you just like, if you willfully sin, it is like dumping cold water on the flame of the Spirit. And so he probably actually started to fight against his sin with everything he had. And not only that, but he probably just started actually like obeying God when God spoke to him. And when the Spirit of God just told him, hey, go do this, he probably just started doing it. He's like, okay, I will. Anything else? Okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. Why? Why? Like, we don't know this is true of Stephen's life, but every single great man or woman of God lived a life like this. Every single person in the past, you look and you go, how did that person become so spiritually powerful? The answer is they trained themselves for it. But why does he do this? It's because he doesn't want to take a back seat in this war. He wants to be on the front lines. He's so discontent sitting on the sideline. He wants to be on the front lines of this. And he knows that if he's going to be on the front lines, he needs power. And so he trained himself to become the person that Jesus Christ bled and died for him to be. A man of immense spiritual power. A power that wasn't his. He didn't cultivate it. He didn't create it. He didn't earn it. But he oriented all of his life so that he could be filled with it. Are we doing the same thing? Are we doing the same thing? Maybe another question that, that's like maybe more revealing is actually, do you even want this power? Like, do you want to be like that? Do you want to be on the front lines of God's war against sin and death? Do you actually want to be on the front lines? Do you want to be the tip of the spear? Stephen did. 
And he was. And because the spirit that was inside of him was the spirit of God, and because he was filled with that spirit, when he walked forth into the world, he walked forth with a wisdom and a power that the world could not contend with. When I was studying this passage, I read Charles Spurgeon's take on it. And uh, if you ever just want to be blown away, you should read Spurgeon because he's brilliant. And he's an amazing man of God. But this is what he says about this passage. He says, now, my brothers, if you desire to walk among the sons of men without pride, but with a bearing that is worthy of our calling and adoption as the princes of the blood royal of heaven, then we need to be trained by the Holy Spirit. Because these men who are cowardly, whose profession of Christ is so timid that you hardly know whether they've even made it or not, those men who kind of go cap in hand into the world asking leave, let live, those people know nothing of the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit dwells in a man, he knows what is right and he holds to it. And he's not the servant of men. He's humblest among humble in all things else. When it comes to matters of conscience, he owns no master but his master who is in heaven. No child of God, listen, no child of God need fear the face of the great, for he is greater than they. If you are a child of God, the most powerful, elite person in this world, you are greater than them. Why? Because God has put within you a spirit of uprightness and sternness, of which the world cannot bend let its blasts howl as they will. He says, I pray that we may learn the manliness of Christianity. For much injury has been done to the faith by those adopting another mode of procedure and fawning and cringing before the mighty of the world. But he's talking about Stephen. He's saying this upward glance of Stephen is like saying to us, eyes up, Christian, eyes up. Let your eyes go to heaven. Let the desires mount. Let your whole soul fly to heaven. And with heaven in our eye, we may walk through the crowds of men in the way a lion walks through a flock of sheep. And our fellow men shall involuntarily own our power. Christian, you have the same spirit inside of you that rose Jesus from the dead. There is nothing and no one in this world you should fear. There is no one you should cower before. There is no one you should bend your knee to except King Jesus. An all-consuming passion for the name of Jesus. That is what consumed Stephen's life. Whether he was ladling out food, he's serving hungry people, or whether he was standing before the most powerful authorities of the land proclaiming the gospel, this was an all-consuming passion for Jesus that oriented every single thing he did. He was a man filled with the Spirit of God. And listen, the Spirit of God is not content with any smaller ambitions than this. The Spirit of God is not content dwelling inside weak-willed, apathetic, sidelined Christians. The Spirit of God makes lambs into lions. He makes weak people into ironclad, unshakable, courageous warriors. Do you understand? You can have that life. Like, you can actually be that person. You can have that passion. You can have that power because the power that Stephen had is the exact same thing Jesus is holding out to you with an invitation he doesn't want to give you a portion of his spirit. He wants to give you the fullness of it in power. He doesn't want to make you into someone who is weak-willed. He wants to make you into someone whose voice shakes the earth around them. He wants to make you into, so, into someone so spiritually powerful that actually the demons and the enemies of God know you by name because they're afraid of you. And they're afraid of your power. And they're afraid because you're not an apathetic Christian who binge watches all the latest stuff on Netflix, but you're actually staying up all night praying and reading the Bible and you're becoming someone who's actually going to be a warrior for the kingdom. And so the demons would know your name because they hate you. He wants to make you into someone who's so filled with wisdom and knowledge and power that the world can't contend with you. He wants to make you into someone so spiritually power, so spiritually powerful the only course of action they would have to shut you down is to kill you. And the Spirit of God wants to make you into someone who is so spiritually powerful that when the world would come to you to take everything from you, 
you would actually be strong enough to let them. The power that Jesus is extending to you is not the power to conquer over the enemies of God through brute force or political persuasion or social influence, but it is the power to lay down your life for those around you, just like Jesus laid down his life for you. It's the power to be able to see and to be able to hear the words of Jesus spoken over you louder and more clearly than the words of those who are condemning you and throwing stones at you. It's not the power to lift the stones and conquer God's enemies. It's not the power he's talking about, but it's the power that while being crushed by them, you would actually be able to use your last dying breath to forgive them and pray for their grace and pray for their salvation. That is real power. There's nothing more powerful a human being could experience than that. Why? Because it's exactly what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross. Like when Jesus did his miracles, that wasn't what changed the world. What changed the world was when he died on a cross for the sins of people. And even when Stephen was doing his miracles, right? His wonders and signs. That wasn't actually what changed the story of Acts. What changed the story of Acts was actually when he died. The greatest miracle and the greatest evidence of his spiritual power that actually came in the moment of his death when he was able to set his eyes above the throng of angry people persecuting him and actually stare into the face of God and believe his words over him instead of their words over him. And in seeing Jesus and in being captivated by him and enthralled by him, he would be able to look back down into the eyes of the murderers and he would be able to speak kindness and grace and forgiveness over them and actually pray to his God for them as they drop the last stones onto his shattered body. That was the scene that Paul saw when everyone came and laid robes down at his feet. They were honoring Paul, Saul, because of his ability to conquer, but soon Paul would realize that the man crushed beneath his feet was the one with real power. The one whose blood was seeping into the ground was the one who had truly conquered. Stephen's death is not a tragedy. It is an unbelievable victory. <laughs> because in the next chapters of the story, the man standing over Stephen's execution would meet Jesus. And God changed him. He becomes the greatest missionary the world has ever known. And his whole life would be shaped by this moment. Because while Paul never talked about Stephen directly, almost every single thing he writes is a reflection of this moment he has with this man who's just like Jesus because he's so filled with his spirit. Is what you're living for worth dying for? This is what Spurgeon says about this too. He says, I believe that every Christian heart that loves the Savior feels just like that. He's talking about Stephen. Like the dying soldier in the hour of battle who is cheered with the thought that the general is safe, the victory is on our side, my blood is well spent, my life is well lost to win the victory. Let Christ gain, let him win, let him reign, and I will make no bargain with God as to myself. Let Jesus be king over the whole world, I care for nothing else. Let him wear the crown, let the pressures of the Lord prosper in his hands, let his covenant purposes be fulfilled, let his elect be saved. Let the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of a Christ. Why? What does it matter if even 10,000 of us go pining through the valley of the shadow of death? Our lives would have been well spent to earn such a great reward as to see Jesus glorified. Stephen, his life in so many ways is just like Jesus. Actually, in the New Testament, there's no one who is more like Jesus than Stephen. His whole life almost like mirrors the story of the Gospels. Even his last dying breath is the same thing as Jesus speaks from the cross. Is the life you're living worth dying for? The things that you wake up thinking about, the things you spend your money and your imagination on, are those things worth giving up your life for? 
Because if they are not, you need a bigger ambition for your life. You need a bigger dream for your life. You need a greater ambition to give yourself to because you have the spirit of God inside of you and he doesn't settle for small ambitions. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is holding out a life like this to every single one of you. I believe that with my entire heart that you who's here, who loves Jesus, you can actually have that life. Like he's inviting you into it. He's not hammering you with it and saying you better become this person. He's saying you can be this. You can have that passion. You can have that power. The question is just, will you be filled with it? Will you train yourself for it? Will you give yourself to it? Will you make that the focus and center of your entire life? Some of you who are in the room, you're not Christians yet, okay? You're just not. This is true. You're trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing. This retreat is about following Jesus. I've been honestly trying to figure out the whole week. I'm like, what is this retreat about? It's about following Jesus. It's about being a disciple. And, and if you're in the room and you have not chosen to follow Jesus, you need to follow Jesus because you are an unfaithful spouse. Like, you've been so unfaithful. You, you have so much sin in your life, and, and you actually need this grace that only Jesus can give you that covers all of your sin. You need to follow Jesus because of that. You need to follow Jesus because he's actually trying to give you the blessing you've been looking for your entire life. Like, you don't have to run anymore. You don't have to be in this hamster wheel of approval. You can follow Jesus, and he will give that to you. But you need to follow Jesus because you're actually on this path that the world has sent you on that leads to pride and actually ends in destruction. And you need to follow Jesus because he's trying to lead you down this path of life that feels hard and you have to kill your pride, but it's actually the path to eternal life. But you need to follow Jesus because he's trying to give you a life that actually matters and is worth something. He's trying to rescue you from the mundane, pathetic things the world says have value. He's trying to rescue you from the kind of life that when you're on your deathbed, you look back at it and you go, I wasted my entire life. None of this matters. It's all going to be gone when I die. It's not going to be here in 10,000 years. You need to follow Jesus because you actually have a life that matters and you don't want to waste it. And if you're in the room and you are a follower of Jesus, he's inviting you into that. You can actually change the world. Like Thursday night, Colin said that, right? It's like there's 25, you know, 250,000 college students, and we're praying for like 1% of them. Just 1%. I'm telling you, if this room, just this room, decided we're going to be men and women like this, flag in the ground, this is our ambition. This is the focus. This is the entire goal of my life moving forward is I want to be someone filled with the Spirit of God because I believe in the promises of God and I want to be on the front lines of His war. If every single person in this room did this, 1% would be hilariously small. 2,500, 1%? That's such a small number. But it's a huge number if we're on the sidelines. And it's a huge number if we give our life to all these other ambitions and all these distractions. Jesus wants to change the world. He is changing the world. He wants to use you in ways you cannot even fathom. Stephen's just like you. No different. Same spirit. But he did something with it. He trained himself with it. I want to invite you to do that with me. I am a sinner just like you. I am flawed just like you. There's nothing different about me than you. But I want to follow Jesus. And I, want, I don't want to just like be a normal Christian. I want to be a Christian that's filled with the Spirit of God. I want that so bad. And so I'm giving up things in my life that are distractions. I'm giving them up. I'm selling crap I don't need. I'm trying to watch less TV so I can read the Bible more. 
I'm trying to wake up really early, which I'm not a morning person. I'm trying to wake up at 5 a.m. just so I can like pray because it's the only time I have to pray. I want to be a man like this. Do you? You can be. The invitation of the Spirit and my invitation is to you is join me in that. And if we do, Jesus will not just change this city. Jesus will change the world. Let's pray. Jesus, when you left, you said that it was better that you leave because you were going to give us your spirit. And you said that there were things that we'd be able to do because of your spirit that we would not be able to do even if you were standing right next to us. And God, I, I want to just pray boldly over this group of people, this group of brothers and sisters, this group of people that are made in your image. God, I, just, I pray boldly that they would be people who do not settle for anything less than the fullness of what you bled and died for them to be. Jesus, whether that's to be a missionary overseas and to suffer for your gospel in a place that's really hard, or whether it's to be the best biologist they can possibly be that proclaims the creator in their place of work, whether it's to be a great spouse someday or a great mom someday or a great father someday, Whatever context you give us, whether we're literally the guy serving soup at the soup kitchen, Jesus, would you make us men and women who are filled with your spirit and strip away everything else from our lives so that we could become those people? And if you would, if you would, Jesus, please change the world through us. 